electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. Back to school, but not yet. New York City public schools have delayed day one with the help of teachers unions, the leader of the American Federation of Teachers. We need to actually create the kind of environments that get kids back to learning. You can't pit learning versus living. Testing, 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 getting from stay at home to back out in the world. Dr. Scott Gottlieb says it hinges on one thing. I think the big mistake here, and the one that I think history is going to judge, is the fact that we didn't have diagnostic testing in place to know which cities were at risk of becoming New York. Those stories, plus the Apple and Tesla stock splits, explained what's holding up TikTok's deal and knowing our duties to support high-end liquor, that is. I quote the great George Costanza, what is duty? It's Wednesday, September 2nd, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Brian Sullivan and Will Frost. Joe and Andrew are both out today, but Brian and Wolf, it's good to see you guys. Good morning, everybody. I want to start with a personal statement. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced yesterday that the city's public schools, the largest school system in the country, will delay the start of the in-person school year by 11 days due to concerns about coronavirus safety. Students and teachers will still participate in a hybrid learning model, some in person, some virtual. The new start date, September 21st, is part of an agreement with education unions that have been pushing for additional classroom safety since April. The September 10th start date, they argued, was rushed and it was risking infection for everyone. At the head of the push for additional safety, the United Federation of Teachers, the president of that union, even threatened to strike last month if schools refused to implement a satisfactory testing plan. That strike would have been illegal under New York state law. In his announcement this week, the mayor underlined testing as the key to this new school plan. We now have over 200 testing locations in New York City, but we'll be augmenting that with mobile testing vans, with testing tents at school sites. We're going to make testing available every month in every school. And with this plan, the city and the teachers might finally be on the same page. Our independent medical experts have stamped this plan, and we now can say that New York City's public school system has the most aggressive policies and greatest safeguards of any school system in the United States of America. That was Michael Mulgrew, the president of the United Federation of Teachers. So what happens now? Are 11 days enough to implement the plan, ease concerns of outbreaks, and prepare for the deficits in learning that could accompany this new hybrid model? Here's Becky Quick. Joining us right now to talk more about this and much more is the American Federation of Teachers President, Randy Weingarten. She is the uh, head of the AFT, which represents 1.7 million members, including preschool all the way through grade 12. Uh, The AFT is affiliated with the United Federation of Teachers, who represent the most teachers in New York City public schools. And uh, Randy, thank you for being with us this morning. My pleasure. So the big news yesterday is that New York City public schools uh, are going to be pushing back the opening for in-person learning, uh, in-classroom learning for students by 10 days. I I know that this was done 
uh, over a lot of hard work and that the union was pushing mm -hmm. for this. I just uh, wonder where things stand right now. The, there are many more guidelines and other um, right. steps that will have to be met before that in-person lear learning actually takes place. I think that Mr. Mayor de Blasio finally recognized that they were not ready um, and um, the principals and the educators have a basically a 50-point checklist that UFT has put together. But equally important is the preparation for both virtual and remote and this um, testing that is going to be mandatory uh, on a routine and randomized basis to make sure that everybody can see whether or not the virus has taken hold again in New York. And that is what LA is trying to do. That's what is really landmark about this agreement in New York. And frankly, that's what we should be doing in other places as well. Yeah, I have to say, I looked through the list of, of the randomized testing where you take 10 to 20 percent of, of the student population and the adult population and are trying to make sure that there's nothing in the school. You have to make sure that the 50-point che checklist is met. But I just, when I saw the news yesterday that it would be delayed by 10 days, and then I saw the 50-point checklist, and this is something you all have been trying to work on since April, but now you have 10 days to actually implement it. When I read it, I thought... I don't see how the schools open in 10 days. Do you think realistically that most of these schools will open in 10 days? Well, I think that what happens is now you have an, um, an arc on how to open. Would it have been better if, you know, the, the, this work had been done a month ago? Yes, of course. But what's happening in New York is that um, people are really trying to figure out how to create some in-person learning. Remote will you know, is the default all in so many places around the nation um, when you don't, when you have high community spread or you don't have the resources. Today, by the way, we're having actions all across the country to one more time try to get the resources to do, you know, to get the Chromebooks, to get the PPE and all this stuff. So I would actually say that on a local level, there will be some places that will um, be able to reopen, you know, in this hybrid model in New York, you know, in 10 days from now. And there'll be some places that will not. It's really kind of, it's very um, sad that it took the, yeah. um, the talking about a safety strike in order to get everyone focused on what was actually needed. We needed to be safe. But Randy, it's Brian Sullivan. I'm sure that you would also agree, though, that the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is just going to skyrocket, not only this year, but for years to come. Economic and educational inequality is just going to boom. The kids that, that don't have high-speed internet, whose parents aren't home to supervise them. You know, I have a friend who's a middle school principal in a blue-collar area of New Jersey. He said when they went virtual in March, half the kids just vanished. They just disappeared, and they didn't know where they were. They couldn't force them on the Zoom. Has there been any talk at a high level of canceling the school year to make sure that some kids who are going fully or able to do it hybrid, they're just gonna power ahead, especially when they're young. Well, I don't think that we, so look, you can't cancel the school year because that Why is not? terrible for all kids. But what you can do is you can actually cancel um, like what was done in last April you can cancel the high stakes testing. What we need to do is we need to actually create the kind of environments that get kids back to learning. You can't pit 
learning versus living. And I agree with you about the inequities. We have been fighting, for, for instance, for connectivity. I was just on the phone with one of the um, one one of the people who you know who run Comcast and Spectrum yesterday, and I'm like, why are you not giving connectivity to every single parent in America? You know, you're 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 but you uh, have but it. Randy, but just Randy, a, a first, a Randy. Uh, Randy, you're a lifelong educator. Is a first grader going to learn to read over Zoom? No. What, but what will happen is But a first is grader a first... in a school will. So those two kids in second grade are going to have very... The, the one kid who's in school, and there's plenty of kids in America right. in school, he'll learn or she'll learn to read going into second grade, while the kid who's virtual won't. I mean, how do you ever make up that gap? I understand. It's an impossible well, position to be in. I understand that. Right. So look, I think it is. Look, the pandemic is makes makes for really terrible choices. But what we have to do is we have to actually get to our kids and connect, which is why, you know, UFT, the educators in New York City, really struggled to figure out how to harmonize both safety and um, to the extent possible in school learning. I'm a big believer that if we can make it safe, we have to be in school for all the reasons that you just said. That's part of the reason why we started working on this in April when, look, I'm a New Yorker. April was the height of the COVID um, of infection rate in New York, and yet we still started working on it then. That's why these safeguards are so sacrosanct and why the whole issue about community spread and making sure you see asymptomatic spread. The only way you see it is through medical monitoring with that kind of testing. I don't disagree with you about what this pandemic is doing to kids. It's part of the reason that we know we've been working on this so hard all across America, but you have to have the transparency. You have to focus on people's lives and health and safety first and, and, and harmonize that and make sure we can harmonize that with education. I have a big bet on our kids, meaning if we can make them, if we can make sure that they are safe and that they are emotionally safe, meaning, and we really focus on their well-being, then we're going to be able to overcome this learning loss. Hey, Randy, I know you said that some schools in New York City might actually be able to open 10 days from now. Do, can you put a percentage on how many you think would be opening in person? And do you even have the testing of it, um, the, the testing in place to be able to, to start with the testing that would be required for any of them to open? Well, let me just put it this way. I, I know that the UFT has trained, the Teachers Union in New York City, has trained over 100 people to actually do many of these inspections. I know that the city has said that they've done these some of these inspections. I also know that, um, that, that principals and building reps are going to be in their schools in the next few days really assessing it. So I can't give you the assessment um, now. I would say that probably next week you'll get some of that assessment. Um, but it's going to be just like, you know, all these other places that started remotely for the first semester and are thinking about if, if one gets control of the pandemic, how to actually get back to in-school instruction. That's the same in terms of um, New York is just one, two, five, ten steps ahead of that. But I want to just get back to one point, which is Europe figured out Europe is way ahead of us. And the bottom line here is that 
we should have fought the coronavirus in the same exact way as New York and New Jersey did it on a national basis, instead of pretending that it didn't exist or having these kind of fantasy lands. And I think that that issue that I have and that you have about what it has done to our kids, if we had fought it as robustly instead of pretending it didn't exist as South Korea, as Germany, as, as um, Norway, as Denmark, we'd be in a different position right now than we are. And I really put that at the foot of the Trump administration. Well, we're out of time. That was our last question for it. But I think that this is going to be a debate that continues to range. Uh, Randy, I want to thank you for your time. And we'll have you back with an update once we see when the of schools course. will be open. Next on Squawk Pod, as Americans look at six months of virus life, former FDA chief and Squawk regular Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the many seasons of coronavirus. The strategy for the fall and the winter in terms of controlling this infection is going to be testing and tracing, quarantining people who are sick. A vaccine that's going to be widely available isn't going to be till 2021. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod, today with anchors Becky Quick, Wilfred Frost, and Brian Sullivan. Here's Wilfred. Roche announcing it will launch its new rapid COVID-19 tests in Europe at the end of the month. The Swiss pharmaceutical company's antigen tests will be used for both asymptomatic and symptomatic patients. It says the test typically yields results in about 15 minutes and accurately diagnoses an affected COVID-19 patient more than 96% of the time. The U.S. reported just 33,888 new cases of the coronavirus on Monday, the lowest daily tally reported in weeks, according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins University. However, daily cases uh, reporting tends to dip early in the week, with local public health offices closed for the weekend. Joining us now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's a former FDA commissioner. He's also a CNBC contributor and serves on the boards of Illumina and Pfizer. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, great to see you as always. Uh, good, good morning to you. I'd mean, like to start, if we can, on, on that latest uh, development of the Roche test uh, sounds very promising, quick, fairly cheap, uh, Europe uh, only initially. Uh, that said, uh, despite the progress in testing in all sorts of areas, are we now uh, in a sort of good positive way close enough to getting a vaccine that actually testing itself won't be the definitive uh, answer to this crisis, but rather vaccines will? When we have a vaccine, will testing become much less important? No, testing's still going to be important, just like testing for the flu is important and testing for strep throat is important. You're going to want to differentiate an illness when people present with a respiratory uh, infection going into the fall and the winter. I don't think that we're at a point where a vaccine is so near term that it's going to obviate the need for better testing to get into the market. I think really the strategy for the fall and the winter, really for the remainder of 2020, in terms of controlling this infection, is going to be testing and tracing, quarantining people who are sick. 
um, a vaccine that's going to be widely available and provide enough immunity in the general population to really make a difference in terms of the transmission isn't going to be till 2021. The Roche test is significant. This is just like the Abbott test. I think you're going to see a wave of these approvals of these point-of-care tests that don't require sophisticated machinery to run that are cheap and highly sensitive and specific. Um, Roche is initially getting authorization in Europe for this test. They have a CE mark in Europe that they're seeking. But I would expect that they'll bring it here to the United States pretty quickly. And last point, this follows a pattern of how FDA typically approaches new technology. The first platforms that they approved here back in uh, February timeframe were the PCR platforms used in sophisticated labs. Then you saw them authorize the antigen-based tests like the Sophia 2 and the Abbott ID Now, the platform that the White House uses, or the Beck and Dickinson Veritor. And now you see them moving on to these card-based tests. The first authorization was the Abbott test, but there's other manufacturers working on these, one of which is Roche. And I would expect to see those other manufacturers now authorized in pretty short order. So, so is it, do you think this Roche test is transformational? I think these, this genre of tests are transformational. The Abbott test is the same kind of test. This is a very cheap, easy-to-use test that could be deployed in schools and workplaces, give a very quick result um, that's highly sensitive and specific. The Abbott test is being priced at $5. You can also produce these in massive volumes because it doesn't take a lot of sophisticated components in order to produce these tests. So Abbott said they'll be able to produce upwards of 50 million tests a month, Roche said that they're going to approach those kinds of levels in a couple of months as well in terms of their production. I know there's other large manufacturers working on these kinds of card-based tests. And what this is really going to allow is to move testing into schools, for example, into nursing homes, into more austere facilities that don't have sophisticated machinery, don't have sophisticated medical personnel. Some of these tests can be run just with a tech in, in these settings. Frankly, a lot of these tests, I think, could be run by consumers, but they're not going to be authorized for home use, at least not initially. AMC uh, theater chain uh, stock is up quite sharply today. They're, they're going to get to 70% of their theaters open by this weekend. Do, do things like that worry you? Are large indoor gatherings uh, for non-essential uh, uh, gatherings uh, something of a concern to you? They're higher risk. I think we need to be circumspect about what we open while we're trying to open schools. Our priority should be to get the schools open and do that safely and not have outbreaks in communities that could put pressure on the schools to have to close. And certainly when you're looking at opening venues that are indoor congregate settings where people congregate inside where there might be poor air circulation, that's a higher risk setting. And we know that the super spreader events, they emanate from those kinds of settings. Certainly things done outdoors we know is a lot safer than things done indoors in confined spaces. Now I don't know what the movie theaters have done to try to retrofit their theaters with better air handling um, equipment. Hopefully they've done that, um, and that will reduce the risk to some degree. I know that a lot of them are going to require masks inside the theaters. So there's things that they can do, I think, to reduce the risk in those settings. But I would have liked to have seen um, more local communities open schools, do that successfully, and then we can incrementally open these kinds of indoor entertainment venues if we're successful keeping the infection rates down as the schools reopen. That really needs to be our priority right now. Hey, Dr. Gottlieb, back to uh, just the testing, the, the idea that you said it yourself, you, you don't think that this is going to be readily available for consumer over-the-counter type of use. I, when do you think that does happen? Because I think that would be uh, hugely important, too. I mean, I'd love to see it. It could start to happen this year. I would expect some manufacturers are already in front of the FDA with, uh, with requests, with emergency use authorization requests for tests that can be used at home. 
Um, I think you could see these large manufacturers come back and try to seek those authorizations as well. Initially, a sticking point was that the FDA was going to impose a requirement that the results needed to be reportable on a mandatory basis back to a public health authority. They seem to have relaxed that a little bit. They're still going to require it, but they're not going to hold up an authorization just because a test can't uh, put in place a, a foolproof way to make sure that the result gets reported back to a public health authority. What they don't want is a lot of people self-diagnosing at home with COVID and that result not getting reported. But I think that, that is, that's a concern. But I think the bigger imperative here is to make sure that people can have access to testing. So you want something like a pregnancy test that can be used very easily at home. I would expect to see that this year. You might see it by the fall. Um, I don't think you're going to see it in the next month or so. And remember also the Abbott test, the government really cornered the supply of that test for the foreseeable future for the next few months. That test isn't going to be readily available in the market to businesses or other entities because the government has bought up the, most of the available supply and said that they're going to direct that mostly to nursing homes right now. So consumers aren't going to see that test for a little while. Um, Dr. Gottlieb, just wanted to end by asking you about a, an op-ed that's in the, the Wall Street Journal today uh, titled The Failed Experiment of uh, COVID uh, Lockdowns that suggests that uh, social distancing uh, did not uh, necessarily help and that reopening the economy has not hurt uh, in terms of the spread of the disease. What, what, do, you, what do you say to that? Well, I th you know, I think we need to remember what was going on in March. The New York City healthcare system was about to be overrun and would have been overrun if New York didn't implement the stay at home order. There's really, I think, little question about that. And we didn't have any diagnostic testing in place to know which city was the next New York City. And it's very likely that Detroit, Chicago, New Orleans, probably Boston would have had epidemics on the same density as New York if we didn't issue that stay-at-home order. Now, in retrospect, could we have issued stay-at-home orders that were more focused on certain cities where there was spread? Yes, we could have if we knew actually where the spread was, but we didn't because we didn't have the diagnostic test. So we had to assume that every city was equally vulnerable, even though we now know that wasn't the case. And so I think the big, the big uh, mistake here, and the one that I think history is going to judge and look very closely at, is the fact that we didn't have diagnostic testing in place to know which cities were at risk of becoming New York. But certainly New York, New York came right up to the brink of their healthcare system collapsing. They made it through, but they were right up to the brink of that, of that point. Dr. Gottlieb, great to see you as always. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. Coming up on Squawk Pod, scenes from a pandemic. Zoom, liquor sales, and the secret to a good TikTok. TikTok's power is not in the dancing, the cats. It's in the AI-powered algorithms that enable them to basically say, if you like this, you're going to like that. The stories that got us talking today, right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. 
Good morning. Welcome back to Squatbox here on CNBC. I'm Wilfred Frost along with Becky Quick and Brian Sullivan. Joe and Andrew are off today. Deal talks for TikTok's U.S. operations have hit a bit of a snag or maybe a, an entire roadblock. This is all because of China's crackdown on its tech export rules, which were announced last Friday. A new Wall Street Journal report shows that the issue is that the app's core algorithms and whether they can actually be included as part of a deal. Those algorithms determine which videos are served to users, and the report from the journal says that potential buyers consider that formula a large part of the value of TikTok, and it's still unclear whether China's government would have to sign off on that part of the sale. Guys, this is another situation uh, where President Trump has been ramping up his talks about how dead set he is on, on his side of things. And the Chinese government obviously ramping up its side, too. So I, I think this may be more than just a snag. Even aside from the snags that arise from this between the U.S. and Chinese governments, you also have a question why ByteDance would want to take only 20 to 30 billion uh, if all of that IP moves across to and, and the buyer, or the, whether it's Microsoft or someone else, can use it uh, to expand into all sorts of, uh, of other areas. If, if that's the case and, and the true value comes with this machine learning algo and, and all the rest of it, uh, then 20 to 30 billion uh, doesn't seem like a fair price, even if they're buying 20 to 30 percent of the geographic reach of TikTok currently, and TikTok uh, is worth 100 billion or so. So, so it, is a, it is a kind of tough one. And at the same time, you would see that Microsoft might not be interested if they didn't get that. And that brings you back to a point right. where maybe ByteDance is better off not selling this, as painful as it would be to see its U.S. business, which is clearly a big part of its business, shut down altogether. Uh, they kind of almost want a much higher price to sell everything or, or not sell anything at all, if you think of it that way. Right. Or there's, yeah, well, there's a third option, Wolf, which is that, that it's invaluable because, the, because there's obviously something in the AI that China may be afraid could get out there into U.S. hands or they don't want simply U.S. companies to have that kind of technology as well. Remember, you know, people may be wondering why we're spending so much time talking about a short video format app. That's not it. TikTok's power is not in the dancing, and the cats, and the combination of the two. It's in the AI-powered algorithms that enable them to basically say, if you like this, you're going to like that. Though the artificial intelligence appears to have maybe a lot more value than 20 or 30 mm -hmm. billion, at least to the Chinese government. In our What's Working segment today, we are focusing on stock splits, companies doing it, companies that may consider doing it, and whether investors are really getting a deal when they do. Joining us for that right now is Eugene Profit. He is the CEO and portfolio manager of Profit Investment Management. And Eugene, first question, is Profit really your last name? That was your given last name? Good morning, Becky. Yes, it is. In fact, early in my career, I used to take my birth certificate to client meetings just to make certain that they didn't make it up. Yeah, I, I have to say, you are in the right business, my friend. You are appropriately named. Um, Eugene, let's talk about stock splits, because it's been kind of phenomenal seeing what's happened with Apple shares, with Tesla shares, uh, just on the news that they were doing these stock splits. In theory, you're not getting anything more. You're just changing the amounts. But we have seen huge run-ups. So what do you think about stock splits? And are investors getting a, a bargain when there is a stock split? Well, Becky, as, as as common knowledge, really, stock splits really are a mathematical exercise. And so, um, theoretically, um, there's no difference between owning 1,000 shares or owning 10,000 shares based on a 10-for-one type stock split. However, um, investors have taken a different approach to that. And generally, um, stocks have um, performed a little bit better, even going all the way back uh, almost 25 years when Berkshire Hathaway, which never 
um, split. As you know, Warren Buffett has been a uh, not a proponent of stock splits, um, created Berkshire B shares um, to basically thwart the institutional broker dealers from creating unit trusts because retail investors wanted to participate in a stock that was over $200,000 a share. So it's not, it's a little bit surprising to see what happened with Apple and Tesla um, with respect to how much they went up as a result of the stock split. But it actually caused me to, to take a step back and look at some other companies that might actually benefit from the same type of philosophy where retail investors who know the companies, know the products, but the stock prices might be too high to actually get a round lot, which isn't as important as it was many years ago, but still, um, investors like to have more shares than not. So I think that in this market where a lot of companies have done very well, stock prices exceeding $500 a share, it might be an opportunity for corporate boards to look at potentially expanding their shareholder base, create more demand for their shares by something as simple as a stock split. Is that because there are so many more individual investors in the market these days? I was looking at some numbers yesterday that just showed the amount of trading that's taking place is a much heavier percentage of individuals than it has been in the past versus just the bigger brokerages buying. Yeah, I think it is. But overall, essentially, you end up with the same um, dollar amount of holdings in a particular company post-stock split, assuming it doesn't run up as much as Tesla and Microsoft as you had before the stock split occurred. Let's talk about the names of, of companies that you think might benefit from it. Amazon's at the top of your list. Yeah, it is. And it, it's sort of, um, if, you, if you think about it, Amazon um, basically is doing extraordinarily well. Um, in the pandemic, almost everyone's using the company, and um, yet the stock price is very high. Um, it's split a couple of times in its history, but it's been a long time um, since it's split. So if you're looking at a company over $500 a share, they could easily engage in a 7 to 1 or 10 to 1 stock split and probably have a lot more um, interest in retail investors. If you think about it, um, it's Amazon is not as expensive as Tesla, a little bit more expensive than Apple. They kind of sit right in between. Um, and I think that it probably would be a good candidate for a split coming in the next, say, 6 to 12 months. You know, Eugene, the one thing with that is uh, Jeff Bezos has always been very clear uh, since the very beginning when that company went public. He, he basically told investors, don't come if you want to turn a profit immediately, that this is going to be a company that's going to grow over a long period of time, that's going to invest a lot of money. And I think he very specifically has done that because he wants to choose the stock owners that, that, that buy into his company. He wants to pick his partners and wants to be a little choosy with it. If you split that stock 10 for one, you're going to get a lot of retail investors who maybe aren't looking at the long term, who are maybe trading in and out of things a little more quickly. And I, I just think over the long term, well, well, I understand that it would certainly bring in some new buyers. It might bring in buyers that, that somebody like Bezos might not necessarily want. Yeah, you may, you may be correct. I, 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 I'm familiar with, with that type of, of philosophy and process, but I think a lot of the trading investors are, are trading a lot more in options. And going back to that Berkshire Hathaway story that I mentioned at the outset back in 96, um, Buffett had the same sort of attitude about um, wanting to have long-term investors and holders. And when he did um, split or created the Berkshire B shares, um, they, he didn't see a lot. They did not see a lot of investors trading in a lot of those shares as a result. So um, while um, you are right that the, there's potential for people to think that more retail investors coming in would create more um, trading volatility, um, it doesn't necessarily lead to 
um, more investors, you know, going in and out every day. In fact, you probably know with some more long-term investors that actually want to own the stock because they think about the fact that they use Amazon every day. Um, they have packages coming in every day. Mm-hmm. They understand it. And so why not own a piece of it? Yeah, I, I know that's the same logic you have with Netflix, which is another stock that you think could be ripe for a split. <clears throat> Eugene, thank you for joining us today. It's really great to see you. And I love your name, Eugene Profit. Uh, my pleasure. Yesterday was a big day for Zoom and really its investors. The company's stock soared 41% on that blowout quarter. The move lifted Zoom's market cap by $37 billion to a total of $129 billion. Keep in mind, guys, Zoom was worth just $16 billion in April of last year. Zoom is now among the 20 most valuable American technology companies with a market cap larger than IBM. And put it this way, Zoom yesterday added as much value as eBay is worth. Zoom added an eBay or a Chipotle yesterday. <laughs> top that, Wilf. I'm, uh, well, I, I can't top how much in terms of added, but, but uh, the, the other comparison, which I love, is versus the, the major U.S. airlines. Uh, if, you, if you think of Zoom as an alternative to business travel long term, uh, and it's comfortably bigger market cap now than the big three. I think uh, uh, it's close to all of the U.S. assisted airlines, but not quite when you start throwing all of them in. Uh, but, but again, you, you know, whether you're saying Zoom's a, a competitor to mobile phone companies, social media stocks, or actually airlines for, for, for business travel, either way, it's, uh, it's just surpassed so many of them so quickly. An extraordinary run. Part of it is the margins that they have. Their profit margins, I think, were 72% for Zoom last time around. I mean, it's a lot easier when what you're paying for is the engineers, which obviously are expensive, and then just the ability to ramp things up, paying for the servers and activity to, to monitor to, to run all of that. But uh, these companies don't have the type of capital expenditures. The reason the technology stocks continue to outperform all the time is it doesn't take the same amount of capex to keep the profits growing in those companies that it does in the traditional guys like the airlines or, or some of the other uh, mm-hmm. big stocks that you might think of. The, the thing but are we all going to Zoom as much when we go back to work? And we will go back to work. There'll be a day I'm where we we'll want to get guys. back to work because I love, I love, I, yeah, I, well, it's, well, we're all working, Wilf. I know. I mean, physically, but Just you meant when we're back in, in the in, office. In, yeah, and I, will, I would happily go back to the office. And, and there's going to be people that want to go back. So I wonder, you know, their growth, how long can that truly last? Because... I think there will be a Zoom fatigue. I mean, watching people sort of struggle with it and they're not muted or whatever it might be. I do believe that there will be a peak of video conferences because I don't know about you guys, too. We joked about it halfway yesterday. Your eyes start to hurt. It's not that easy staring at a phone for four hours I, a day or even a computer screen. I'm a big fan of just the regular phone call. I always try and decline the, the video option if, if I can. It's, it's a bit rude to do that when it's someone you, you're having a first time meeting with. But after the first uh, time, I go back to normal phone calls. But the only thing I'd, uh, I'd say that stood out, uh, not the only thing, but the, the thing that really stood out from the, from the interview with the CFO yesterday uh, was the point to say that, that they don't think it will be a winner-takes-all market necessarily uh, going forward. And, and when you look at the run that this stock has had this year, when you look at the, the valuation, 40 to 50 times EV to, to, to sales, even despite the blowout couple of quarters, I think it's fair to say some people are betting that this will be winner takes all and that the number of subscriptions doesn't fall in 2021, even when business travel comes back, even when people go to the office. But, you know, those types of arguments towards valuation and, and multiples uh, one day coming through clearly don't work uh, to all sorts of the tech stock winners of, of this year. And Zoom has, has thrust itself into the front of those lists, uh, along with the Teslas of this world with, with its recent uh, 
performance. 40% yesterday, extraordinary stuff. Pernod Ricard, by the way, we all know this because they're the maker of Absolute Vodka and Jameson Whiskey. Apparently, some people are drinking during the lockdowns as well. Say that profit did fall 77% in the second half of fiscal 2020. Seems impossible. Company taking a write-down of $1.2 billion as sales fell with the shutdown of bars, events, and airport liquor sales. Aha, during the COVID-19 pandemic, which you might have heard about. The charge was largely due to Absolute, which relies heavily on duty-free sales at airports, guys. So you knew that corporate, you know, restaurant sales were obviously down. I did not know until looking at their numbers and reading this story that so much was sold at duty-free shops. Yeah, I guess it varies from, from brand to brand. I mean, interestingly, in some of the other uh, uh, drinks uh, manufacturers that have reported that the, the winners have been actually liquor within it and that people have pivoted more to to that at home rather than some of the things they perhaps uh, used to drink and that beer sales, for example, was suffering, even if seltzer sales structurally long term were doing well. But I don't know if, if Absolute has more of their sales in airports than it does uh, in supermarkets or, or whatever, then that must explain it. I quote the great George Costanza, what is duty? Duty free shop. What, what, what is duty? It's a Seinfeld reference. I think you're quoting Maybe the I great Joe Kern. Drinking. Oh, really? I, I was taking a walk yesterday a couple blocks away and walked by and somebody had put their recycling out just in a milk carton and a big thing. And there were bottles and bottles of empty liquor. It definitely made me stop and do a spin. Like, I hope that is uh, a couple of years worth of uh, stuff that they're taking don't, out right now. Don't it was pretend bold. It wasn't it in, wasn't like, the recycling bin. It was in just a... Becky's recycling shaming. Recycle shaming. It's a new term. <laughs> don't recycle shame me. And by the way, it was only two weeks, I, Becky, and I apologize for leaving it so close I was like, really, put that so stuff in a bin house. with a lid, right? <laughs> And that's Squawk Pod. Thanks for listening today and every day. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.